When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. We're not as divided as we think, Professor Mo Fiorina. The strong partisans feel that the Democrats represent their views, the Republicans represent their views, but everybody else uh, thinks the party system really doesn't fit, and I think it doesn't. We have a, a party system that was that was forged in the 1960s and 70s, and we've moved on. We're 50 years down the road. We have a much different electorate, and we're still trying to impose these two packages. After the recent government shutdown, we ask, has the electorate changed? It's said we're a 50-50 nation, red versus blue, split up into rival camps. Yeah, everybody says we're so divided and much more polarized than any time in recent memory. But is it true? Stanford University political scientist Morris Fiorina, known as Mo to his friends and colleagues, rejects this notion. Instead, he says the two parties have become polarized, much more so than the voters. Professor Fiorina is the author of the new book, Unstable Majorities, Polarization, Party Sorting, and Political Stalemate. He joins us via Skype from the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? I'm glad to be here. Professor Friarina, first question, has the electorate fundamentally changed in recent years? Are voters, as opposed to elected politicians, more polarized than in the past? Well, it depends on how you define uh, polarization. That if you define polarization in the way it normally is, that the middle gives way to the extremes, then the electorate as a whole has not polarized. What I argue in the book is that rather than polarization, the electorate has sorted to some extent, that both parties, partisans in both parties, have become more homogeneous, but it still leaves out a large segment, in fact, the plurality of the population. If you look at people's self-classified ideological positions, if you look at their self-classified partisan positions, if you look at their issue positions, you find the electorate as a whole really hasn't changed since the 1970s, since the Carter and Ford years. We are hearing so much about how social media and Facebook are driving people to the extremes, just judged by the media, even some shows that we've done on our podcast. You would think that there's nobody left in the middle. What is your evidence for the idea that that there, there are still pretty sizable group that would consider themselves moderates? The uh, the whole impact of social media is exaggerated. That uh, research on things like the filter bubbles, ideological silos, uh, concludes that there's really not much of it going on, mainly because not that many people actually look at social media to get their politics and their news. 
So you think people are actually, they're not depending on their Facebook feeds. They're still relying on more traditional sources for news. They're not relying on anything. <laughs> the, the, fact, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, 1% of the population subscribes to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. About 1% of the population uh, watches CN, uh, CNN every night or Fox News or, or um, MSNBC. That a relatively small portion of the population is tuned in politically. And when they go to Facebook and things like that for news, what they often mean, studies show, is they're going for sports, weather, uh, celebrity news, and so forth. They're not really going for government politics, economics, and foreign affairs. So we're distracted. We're not really paying attention. Uh, for the for the, the average ordinary citizen, that's the case. Now, there is a sliver of people, the party activists, the donors. If you look at members of Congress, if you look at people who contribute to campaigns, look at people who work in campaigns, if you look at the leadership of the pro-choice and pro-life and pro-gun and anti-gun groups, they are highly polarized. But the point is they're often portrayed as the norm when, in fact, they're abnormal. Almost everyone you see on TV, politically speaking, is abnormal relative to the rest of the population. So where are some of the studies that you cited coming from? The communications scholars are doing this. I've put in a plug here for one of my colleagues in the economics department, Matt Getzkow, who's done a lot of studies on things like fake news and social media. And uh, also what's interesting is the, uh, the companies themselves, uh, Facebook, do these studies. They have research departments. In fact, <laughs> some of our PhDs are abandoning academia and going over to much more lucrative jobs in the social media industry because they know how to analyze data. So, I mean, they're, they're in fact, there's a very nice Facebook study a few years ago that just concludes the whole filter bubble idea is uh, it's simply not at work. It's at work only among a very tiny sliver of the population that is really sort of basically uh, just sort of news junkies. The, the problem has always been not that people get biased news, uh, although they do, but that they don't get any news. And that's still, as far as I can tell from the communication studies, the truth that a lot of Americans simply don't pay much attention to what's going on. So one of your key points is that the parties have become sorted to become more ideologically extreme. When, I think a lot of people today, especially younger people, might be surprised to find out that it wasn't always like this. I mean, they, that the Democratic Party used to have conservatives and Republican Party used to have liberals. When I tell students today that the Democratic Party used to be the racist party, for example, whereas the Republican Party used to be the environmental party, they're just shocked. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, when I was not that long ago, when I was in college and graduate school, both of our parties were big tents. Uh, the Europeans used to make fun of us. They used to say that um, the American parties, they practice intramural politics. They play between the 40-yard lines. The, the European parties play varsity politics. They use the whole field. Now the situation is reversed. The, the European parties have, in fact, become more centrist, in some cases disappearing entirely, the social democratic parties, whereas our parties have become much more like the European parties of the late 20th century. I, I remember living in Britain in the 1970s and 80s and, and wishing that the British system or British politics was more like the American, that there, there was room for co-mingling between the parties politically. Yes, and that's the way it used to be in Congress. And now it's simply not like that in Congress. The most liberal Republican is to the right of the most conservative Democrat in Congress. So as a result, you say that in Congress, the center is empty. Yes, it is. Uh, that's, the data clearly show that. 
And donors, uh, Mo, uh, donors who've played such a big part in politics, particularly in recent years, with very deep pockets, they tend to be ideologically committed, rigidly liberal or conservative, correct? That is what the data show. And the other important thing is that the um, the donors have played a role in nationalizing our elections. It used to be that an Ohio Republican and an Oregon Republican would run very different campaigns, or, or a New Jersey Democrat and a New Mexico Democrat. But now the Democrats get a lot of their money from uh, California and Manhattan. Republicans get a lot of their money from Texas. And the, the donors can, in fact, enforce a national agenda, even in areas where the national issues might not be as important as many local issues. So they've had a definite homogenizing influence. So if the parties are getting more ideological and more strongly divided, but the voters, for the most part, aren't, what happens to those middle-of-the-road voters? Where are they going? Um, some of them don't vote at all. Uh, some of them switch back and forth. I mean, one of the arguments I make in the book, uh, the book is about how the fact that neither party can, can construct a lasting majority that Congress is up for grabs every election. The presidential races are very close. That minority people who get who lose the popular vote win. And I argue that it stems from the fact that once a party wins, um, then they try to implement a policy that reflects the preferences of their base. So in the next election, all the people, the marginal people who gave you your majority in the last election, uh, defect. They say that's I didn't vote for Social Security personal accounts, or I didn't vote for Obamacare, and they defect, and you get hammered in the next election, which is why you lose your majority. So I think the fact that this what I call a ping-ponging pattern of politics to these unstable majorities reflects the fact that these these uh, each party is a minority party. The strong partisans feel that the Democrats represent their views, the Republicans represent their views, but everybody else uh, thinks the party system really doesn't fit, and I think it doesn't. We have a, a party system that was that was forged in the 1960s and 70s, and we've moved on. We're 50 years down the road. We have a much different electorate, and we're still trying to impose these two packages uh, that have come on a very heterogeneous electorate, and the electorate as a whole is just not uh, uh, not in tune with it. Do you think that one reason why Donald Trump was elected in 2016 was because he didn't fit neatly into the package, that he was seen as not a typical Republican? Yes, part of Trump's appeal was that he was a de-sorter, that he didn't have this. And, and you, you remember a lot of the Republican intellectual class, uh, Bill Kristol and others were sort of George Will horrified about his package of uh, positions. But it just went to show that even base Republican voters weren't nearly as ideologically conservative as the uh, the thought leaders uh, thought they were. Do you, think, and, do you uh, think that Trump has missed an opportunity, though, by governing largely as a, as a rigid ideologue and appealing to his base rather than seizing the opportunity to reach across the aisle? Yes. That I thought there was a potential for Trump to split both parties, and I think the party system badly needs to be shaken up. And uh, the perfect vehicle for this would have been a huge infrastructure program, which would have put the blue-collar wing of the Republican Party, the Democratic Party against more or less the environmental wing and so forth, and would have put the business wing of the Republican Party against the sort of um, uh, deficit hawks and so forth. He had the potential to really drive a wedge into both parties, uh, but he didn't take advantage of that. You know, speaking of the blue-collar voters, the divide between the two extremes, conservative and liberal, may not be as strong among voters as a lot of us had thought, but there is a pretty big divide between elite and non-elite voters. And didn't that also play a part in the Trump victory? Yes, it did. And clearly, there's something 
worldwide going on, or at least in the Western world, that you look at Brexit, you look at Le Pen, uh, you look at Merkel's problems forming a government, you look at the Italian system coming apart. This this problem, though, there are people who are being left behind as social and economic transformations occur in the world, and there are people who are gaining, who are profiting from those. And the latter group simply has not, uh, not paid much attention to those being left behind. And I think that sense that the, um, and it's pretty the case of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has gone upscale over the years, but the old time Democratic Party, the party of Franklin Roosevelt, has not done so well uh, under these social and economic transformations. Looking ahead, to the elections later this year, the 2018 midterms, it's quite possible the Democrats could do very much better than they did in 2016, uh, could possibly take control of the House and the Senate. But if that happened, would that change be likely to last? It's, I don't see the way out of our current instability uh, at the moment. David Brooks some years ago said what we need is a younger, saner Ross Perot. And I think it's going to take something like that. It's going to take a self-funded candidate. Uh, you think about that Macron in, in France, for example. We need a Macron. The, the, it's much is, harder in our is, system. But, this this but, is Emmanuel Macron, the, uh, the, the, the relatively recently elected president who came in as a centrist. Yes. So when the two parties are very close in numbers until you have this unstable, uh, these unstable majorities. When they do get into positions of power, it seems like you say they spend most of their time trying to, or if they're, whether they're in power or not. Let me start that question again because I'm kind of bumbling it. Um, <clears throat> Jim, Jim never bumbles. This is a rarity. <laughs> yes. It's not uncommon that our guests are far more focused and, and, and well-spoken than the hosts are. Spit it out, Jim. On this show. <laughs> so... One of the points you make is that when you have these unstable majorities, both parties are really invested in beating up on the other party and taking positions that embarrass the other party. Yet you, you say, and I quote, they're perfectly prepared to shift positions on a dime if it embarrasses the other party. Aren't we seeing some of that right now? Oh, yeah, we've been seeing that uh, a lot in recent years. I mean, in Obamacare, for example, the, the whole Massachusetts, uh, look at the Massachusetts healthcare system that Romney was so proud of when he was governor of Massachusetts. That came right out of the Heritage Foundation. Now, a few years later, when Romney's running for, for office, he's got to uh, reject his past achievements. And now it's become a sort of a big government oppressive uh, position because the Democrats proposed it. The parties simply want to pick an issue that defeats, that embarrasses and defeats the other party to help them gain a majority. And if it involves ideological inconsistency, that's not a problem. They're perfectly prepared to do it. Right. Richard and I, before the show, we were joking that the Democrats used to be the anti-immigration party. Mm -hmm. Yes, because of labor. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is Professor Mo Farina of Fiorina. Stanford University. Sorry? What? what? Fiorina. 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 Oh, what did I say? Yeah. I'm Lord. always having to correct yeah, Richard's yeah, pronunciation yeah, yeah. of our guest. Yeah. Our guest yeah. is Professor. Yeah, pronounce all the vowels. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Our, I, I, I'm going to try right now. Our guest is Professor Mo Fiorina of Stanford University. Before we continue, Jim, uh, an appeal for help from our listeners. This will take you about five seconds to simply rate us and review us on iTunes. Makes a big difference to us. And tell your friends about us, too. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So let's talk about how we might possibly change this. Is there any hope for independence or third party? Uh, yes, as I was indicating a, a few minutes ago, I think that's probably the only avenue by which we change this. Barring some, the, the other possibility is in the book, I, um, I talk about the similarity of the current period to the period of the late 19th century, which is also a very chaotic political period and also was a period during the Industrial Revolution, massive movements from people from farms to cities, mass immigration. Uh, many of the same kinds of social and economic transformations were going on then. Now, what happened is basically a, a, an economic depression in the 1890s. The McKinley Republicans win, and they govern in a way that the population approves of. And we have 14 consecutive years of unified Republican government. Now, that's one possibility, that some sort of catastrophe occurs under either Trump or under some Democratic administration, and the population turns to the other party, and the other party delivers. The problem we've had in the last 20 years is neither party has delivered. Uh, the other possibility is, as we talked about, a top-down where a third party uh, candidate, a younger senior, Ross Perot, manages to fracture the system. Your idea of an unstable majority runs very much against what a lot of partisans would like to believe. Back in 2004, Karl Rove thought that the Republicans were going to be in charge for a generation. And, and he uh, was called a political yeah, mastermind right. by his opponents. <laughs> right. yeah. And James yeah. Carville thought that, you know, the Democrats were going to be in charge for 40 years. Um, why do people keep underestimating this this lack of stability for whichever party happens to be on top? I think that really strong partisans uh, have an amazing ability to delude themselves, uh, to simply look at facts that uh, seem consistent with their views and ignore everything that doesn't. And yeah, so I mean, they, they somehow seem to think that the party, that the electorate as a whole turned around and gave their president a mandate. Um, no, but the American people don't give mandates. The American people hire you on probation. You're in California, Mo, and, and in California, they changed the way that congressional districts were sorted um, and have a, a more and have an independent vote commission. Has, has that made any kind of difference to the kind of candidates who are selected? Well, there, there's a very little research on it so far, and we're going to need a lot more before we can to talk about the effects of the institutional change. But one of the one of the hopes that people who uh, supported this was that uh, in areas where only a Democrat could be elected, that the, the or a Republican, that the top two candidates, even from the same party, one would have an incentive to move toward the middle. So you might have a very liberal Democrat running against a, a more moderate Democrat. And there is, I think, a little bit of anecdotal evidence that some of that is occurring. One of the big concerns of a lot of people over the years has been the way that incumbents get so entrenched in their position, certainly in the House and the Senate. Are they just as locked in place as ever, or is that also becoming less stable? 
much less stable, not anymore. Uh, it's, uh, this is one of those cases where uh, conventional wisdom has not caught up with the research yet, that the incumbency advantage has been pretty much steadily declining for 20 years. So, um, and, and I think it reflects the fact that basically these are not independent operators anymore, that you elect a Democrat to Congress and that Democrat is going to vote just like the Democratic Party, everybody else in the Democratic Party. They're not tailoring their positions anymore for their districts. And so people are now voting much more for the party. And that's equally true with Republicans, too, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Your finding about incumbents gives me a little bit of hope, and we are a show about solutions, that it will be easier to challenge incumbents in the future if what you're saying is correct. That's right. Uh, there's a couple things that have led into that, in addition to the part, people knowing they're voting for control of the institution, not just their personal representative. Also, the nationalization of fundraising means that if they sense the the uh, the leadership, the brain trust in Republicans and Democratic parties sense weakness anywhere. They can direct funds to challengers in those areas. The challengers are no longer on their own. And so uh, you can, there are very few incumbents or fewer incumbents today get a free ride compared to 30 years ago. So we're a show about solutions. Are there any tweaks you would make to the system? Would you have, if you could rewire our, you know, our political computer, uh, what would you change? Um, I think primaries are a problem, um, that it's only the most uh, rabid supporters of a party or a candidate who get out to vote. Um, I, I think it would be, I'd like to see it easier to get third candidates into the debate. Um, so, so basically, we, we have a two-party duopoly, which is, is not very representative of the country as a whole. It's as if we had both Chevrolet and only Chevrolet and Ford, neither one made very good cars, uh, and you wouldn't let any other car company into the, into the system. So anything that would sort of allow for a greater uh, competition to break the two-party duopoly, I think, would probably be something I'd like to look at. And also allowing and encouraging independents to vote in party primaries would also help, too. You have some states where you can only vote in a Democratic primary or a Republican primary if you're, if you're registered as a Republican or a Democrat. That, that's correct. But the problem is uh, most of them still just aren't motivated enough to go out to vote. That The research on this suggests it's not a big effect, open versus closed. Well, you've raised you raised a really interesting point, which is in many other countries, uh, the, the, the turnout for elections is much, much higher than it is in the United States. That's the case, although it's interesting that in most other democracies, turnout has been declining fairly sharply. It's not as big a difference as it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Remember, we're asked to vote a lot. We're asked to vote in primaries, propositions, referenda. I get to vote for the port, the commissioners of the Port of Redwood City, for God's sakes. Um, whereas in a lot of these other countries, you maybe have one, one election or two elections every five years. In Britain, you vote for parliament maybe every five years, and you maybe have a European parliamentary election. And they don't have primaries and so forth. So an election is sort of a bigger deal uh, in those those countries. Yeah, in the Connecticut town where I spend a good deal of time, there's a completely separate date for town yeah. elections and then for referenda or bond issues than there are for everything else. So you find yourself uh, going to the polls a, a, a tremendous number of times if you're among the, the 10% who actually vote in every so single election. You're saying you vote early and often? <laughs> yes, that's yeah. exactly that's, uh, right. Yeah. One of my colleagues out here a few years ago just carefully kept track. He would have been, if he had tried to vote in every election he was eligible, he would have had to vote 17 times in a two-year period. Another solution that comes to mind is that if 
all of us would would generalize a little bit less about politics, it would be helpful. For instance, uh, one fact about Trump voters, you always think of them as, as, as aggrieved, uh, poor, low-income, working-class white voters. The actual average Trump voter made more money uh, in 2016 than the average Democratic voter did. Um, that's so it's, right. It's easy to generalize. Yeah, that's right. The, the data suggested that it wasn't that they were themselves poor, but they were pessimistic about the economic prospects of their areas, pessimistic about the economic prospects of their kids. And so I think it, it generally, yeah, it was not that they personally had lost their job. It was more of generalized pessimism. Professor Mo Fiorina of Stanford University, thanks very much for joining us. Your, your findings about the number of people who are independents as opposed to strict party ideologues is fascinating. Okay, well, thank you for having me. So, Richard, I always feel like the first step to finding solutions is making sure you've analyzed the problem correctly. There's so many people, so many pundits who argue things they think are self-evidently true. And it's great to have somebody on like Mo Fiorina who says, well, first – you know, we need data. And one of the most stunning pieces of data, a matter of public record, is that the largest group of self-identified voters in the United States are independents, right. about 40%, and that that number has steadily gone up during recent years, whereas you'd think if we are really a 50-50, totally divided nation yelling at each other from left and right, that the number of people who say they're independent would go down. You know, there's this kind of broad kind of not very extreme middle on very many issues that both parties are tending to ignore. And that's the one hope I had when Trump was elected, that maybe he would govern more as a business person, as a pragmatist, and would try and, and move to the middle and, and appeal to Democrats. It simply hasn't, hasn't happened. done it. He has yep. spoken entirely to his his base well it's, but you know when you talk about trump's base it's not even clear what that is because right. um the people who passionately voted for him they they have a sort of a smorgasbord of of political ideas some of which are conservative many aren't i i would bet there are you know for example being anti-trade used to be a liberal position being anti-free trade being anti-nafta and stuff and a lot of republicans are pretty happy with some of the deregulation, stuff like that. But I totally agree with you. It, he's, it's, he's not laying the groundwork for, uh, for continued success of the Republican Party or even for his own reelection. Okay, well, I, I want to switch to some solutions and yes. throw out some ideas at you. I think it would be good if we made voting easier. Uh, for instance, changing the election day from Tuesday to Sunday, like they have done in many other countries. It seems crazy to have elections being held on work days. And also something that, that Mo mentioned is that in many towns and cities around the country, you can find yourself voting at least 10 times a year on various issues. And some of those elections, some of those local elections, you know, the turnout is so tiny. And that's how Absolutely. sometimes, even on the local level, extremists or people who are you know, kind of out on the edge on some single issue often do get elected, even though they're probably not that these positions aren't that popular with most voters. I'm not sure you're going to agree with me on this one. I, I think there ought to be blue sky donor laws. I think we ought to know where political groups money 
it's coming from. Yeah. There ought to be more open disclosure of that. I think we could do a show on that. There's some downsides to that. What, in not telling people where where donors' money is coming from? Um, Do you want your political donations singled out and maybe flyers sent to everyone in your building who you, uh, you, you know, you're nice? uh, What if you were a Republican? You, do you want to flyer to everyone on your block that Richard Davies no, that's a very good gave point, money but to— I think, you, I think you can delineate between what individuals do. You would have a limit on overall individual donations, but if it's a group donation, the group donation— Yeah, maybe so. It's, I it's mean, pretty clear. I mean, as a whole, I'm, def- I'm in favor of transparency, but I'm also right. in favor of people having the freedom to exercise their political— uh, their political views uh, with, you know, without becoming targets. Yeah. And, and then the other thing, and, and this is hearkening back to our show with Eric Liu, one of my favorite fix-it shows, uh, Eric Liu of Citizens University, who talked about the need for us to learn about power, how it's exercised. And he says, if there's one thing we could do individually to improve the political situation in this country, it's join a club. But there's one thing I would add. I mentioned earlier, there's this split between the elite and the uh, the uh, more mainstream or non-elite uh, society. Well, the elite is almost universally to the left in terms of other uh, people, you know, running the universities, controlling the media, uh, you know. And I'm not talking about news. I'm, I'm, and I'm, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really going to push back at you on this. I mean, the, the idea that the elite is almost universally of the left is is is, in my view, not true at all. Uh, for instance, when you look at the donor class, you look sure. at the Koch No, there's brothers, rich Republicans. Instance, and and yeah. they are very active in, in changing the Do they have a top complexion. 10 show on TV? Do, do they have any writers writing for SNL? But they're spending more money contributing to political right. campaigns. Right, sure. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that, that the elite is either all one thing or the other, but you right. kind of are, and I right. disagree with well, you. Well, but the, our, the cultural conversation is dominated by a, a left-leaning worldview. In one of his pieces, Mo made this point. He said that, that, the, uh, that the mainstream – saw this relentless kind of anti-Republican, anti-working class attitude coming from movies and TV shows and comedy. And they, they, they said, wow, these people really don't like us. And then Trump comes along and he sounds like one of them. He talks like one of them despite being rich and um, seems to take their side. And that was very appealing to people who feel they've been disrespected, not just overlooked, but actively disrespected. Yeah, but the, but the reason why Trump got elected is not just because of his base. It's because he had the word, he had the letter R after his name. And a lot of people who always vote Republican were reluctant not to vote for Donald sure. Trump. So, it, it, so I, I do think that this whole idea that Trump's base is somehow a vast number of people is a little bit over-exaggerated. I agree. I think his base is not anywhere near as big as people say. I think both sides have to lower the temperature a little bit. And um, but I think when there's this message out there that one side disdains the other side, you know, that all Trump voters are racist, for example, or all Democratic voters are socialists. That is not that that is is that is pushing this polarization, or it's taking the people in the middle and it's and it's kicking them out of the system and, and turning them off. It's yeah. how we fix it. I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs, and thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The music is by Lou Stravinsky, and we are a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at our website, DaviesContent.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.